in the UK. And good afternoon to those attending in a little near, nearer to Perth. My name is David McKinley, Chair of Friends of UWA in the UK and Europe. Uh, my plans to return to London earlier this year were thwarted by COVID, unfortunately, and led to the cancellation of my flight, so I had to remain here in Perth. Um, we here uh, in WA have viewed with great concern uh, the impact that COVID has had on the lives of you in the UK. The disruption to your work, the disturbance of family and social relationships, uh, the anxiety for your health and welfare, and the extra distances that have been put between you and your loved ones by the various restrictions. So please know that our thoughts are with you and continue to be so. Now for today, welcome to this, the first ever UK Friends Live uh, webinar, brought to you from the recently completed and stunning E-Zone building in the engineering school. Um, thank you for taking the trouble to um, connect with us today. Um, as you know, our London alumni events for this year have had to be canceled. Consequently, we've had to do our best to provide substitute uh, events. Um, You'll have already seen the Health Realm Roundtable webinar, uh, which was uh, brought to you earlier in the year. But this webinar is to replace the London Alumni Reception that had been scheduled for this very day. Uh, we had been, um, when we had hoped to welcome our newly appointed Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ahmed Chakmar, on the stage at Australia House. Well, given this can't happen, I'm delighted to be part of this virtual welcome uh, to Professor Chakmar. Um, we were working for a replacement for our Distinguished Alumni Speaker Series, and when we had news, we'll give it to you. So the format of our hour together today is that I will introduce the Vice-Chancellor. He will give us an update on developments at UWA and talk of his vision for the future. We'll then hear from the Executive Dean of Health and Medical Sciences, Professor John Watson, uh, also a new appointee, who will talk uh, about the progress of the medical school. Then uh, Oliver Deersley, a finally a medical student and president of the WA Medical Student Society, will talk to us about the student experience. And then we'll hear from two leading UWA academics involved in cutting edge research with international reach. Professor Olivia Hall from the Science Faculty and Associate Professor Julia Powell from Law School. We will round out uh, the webinar with a Q&A session. Uh, you can submit questions via the Q&A button uh, at the bottom of your screen as the webinar progresses. Now to our Vice-Chancellor. Uh, you have read Professor Chakma's profile in the event invitation. Let me add a little more. He was born and educated in Bangladesh, traveling on a scholarship to Algeria for an education in um, petroleum engineering. He completed his master's and PhD in Canada. He has operated at senior levels in Canadian universities for 25 years as Dean of Engineering, VP Research, VP Academic, and finally as Vice-Chancellor for two terms at the University of Western Ontario, known as UWO. He was Chair of the Advisory Panel on Canada's International Education Strategy. He was a member of the Science, Technology and Innovation Council of Canada. He served as Chair of Canada's Group of 15 Universities. He was author of the at UWO um, of a program aimed at achieving excellence on the world stage, something that resonates very much with UWA's objectives. He has a number of accolades that demonstrate the esteem with which he has been held in his various communities. He was named in Canada's top 40 under 40. He received the top 25 immigrant award in 2014, and he has had UWO's new engineering building named after him distinctive honour for a Vice-Chancellor. He has for some time been connected with Australia and the Asian region. He has visited Perth on a number of occasions, uh, one for a Canadian Group of 15 conference with Australia's equivalent, Group of 8. He served on the board of the Asian University for Women based in Bangladesh. And interestingly, his Chancellor at UWA was Jack Cohen, founder of Hungry Jacks in Australia and the KFC franchise in Western Australia. We are indeed fortunate to have a seasoned university leader of Professor Chakma's standing and experience, particularly at this difficult time for the tertiary education sector. Now I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Ahmed Chakma, our new Vice-Chancellor. Well, thank you very much, uh, David, uh, for that uh, very kind and lengthy introduction. Uh, 
And good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm glad that uh, uh, you can join us uh, this morning at London time. Uh, well, uh, we couldn't meet in London, uh, but I look forward to uh, you know, visiting Australia House someday because uh, we were frequent visits uh, to London. I used to pass by Australia House to, to make my way to Canada House. It'd be wonderful uh, to be able to enter the building and you know, meet with you when time um, is more favorable. Well, uh, we are uh, located at our Crawley campus. Uh, it is now our tradition that the university acknowledges the custodians and traditional owners of the land on which our campuses are located. Uh, at the main campus, Crawley, where I'm speaking from, uh, the university acknowledges the Wajuk Nunar people as the traditional owners of the land on which it is situated. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. As David mentioned, these are difficult times. Here in Western Australia, although we face uh, restrictions, trouble, life on the surface can look almost normal. But here too, there is a deep concern about what the future holds because of uncertainties caused by COVID. Just as I'm concerned for our staff and students here, I'm concerned equally for our alumni, wherever you are. I want to offer you, first of all, my sincere best wishes and whatever reassurances I can, at least where our university is concerned. The University of Western Australia, your alma mater, although it faces many problems, is in a better position than many others in Australia and indeed around the world. Our founding mission is unique. It is one uh, that is given to us by the representatives of the people of Western Australia. And it is to advance the prosperity and welfare of the people of WA. Uh, this is a unique mission. Not all universities are given that mandate. When we serve the people of WA, we are also serving the people of Australia more widely and very often people around the world who benefit from our discoveries and working with people like you who studied with us. Our strengths reside in the quality of our staff, the students we attract, our research, the power of our international connections, and the support of our alumni and friends around the world. Our reputation is underpinned by outstanding alumni who make such a difference in the world in so many ways. Every day I discover the impact of our alumni are having through their work around the world. Their effect in Western Australia, of course, is immense. People like you take our reach and our positive influence up on the world even further. We are deeply grateful and more than a little proud of your many accomplishments and we bask in your reflected glory. UWA is solidly ranked in the top 100 universities. But I believe that we should not be driven by rankings alone. They are a result, not an objective. If we are true to our values and embrace excellence in all that we do, we will inevitably be highly ranked. However, we remain steadfastly committed to pursuing global excellence in everything that we do. When I accepted the role of Vice Chancellor at EWA last year, it was clear that there were challenges. Put simply, our university was living beyond its means. The impact of COVID-19, particularly on international student enrollment, has made the problem even more serious. When one is faced with any problem of any kind, in my mind, the first step is always to face the facts squarely. The next is to make sure that you are not overtaken by them. You have to be sure of what you stand for and confident that you can find solutions and a way forward. We have that conviction at UWA and we also have the confidence. The government, unfortunately, has chosen not to help the tertiary sector in ways we would have liked. And in some ways, that has hindered us. That is the framework within which we have to work. Along with 
all other Australian universities and those overseas in countries with similar system as ours, like the United Kingdom and Canada, we are dealing with the problems through a program of recovery and growth. We are redoubling our efforts to attract students. Domestic students all over Australia are looking to advance their job readiness. We are working to ensure that EWA is at the forefront of their minds. And I'm pleased to uh, still uh, the introductory part of our student. Uh, I was delighted to learn that you know, he chose to come to WA all day from Adelaide. You know, that's just one of many examples. And we want more students from the rest of the country to come to our campus. We're also working to ensure that we find our, our overseas students from diverse sources. Uh, for very obvious reasons, uh, Australian universities uh, have relied too heavily uh, on Chinese students. Uh, that is just the reality of the market. But we in Perth have a unique opportunity to try to attract more students from the Indian Ocean Rain countries. And we are just going to do that when our borders open. We are providing joint degrees tailored to student needs and introducing incentives to encourage growth. Our staff have responded quickly to COVID crisis, reconfiguring courses to be delivered online in a record amount of time. We are currently in the process of reviewing how our resources are allocated. I'm not in a position yet to be specific, but we need to ensure that everything we do has a key role in achieving our core objectives and that we have a system of accountability. Please watch us. You'll hear more about our various actions in the days ahead. Lastly, and more importantly, we have a vision of where we want to be in the long term that helps inform the choices we make during recovery. We have reaffirmed our commitment to being a research-intensive university. I recognize that funding research is increasingly difficult, but I agree with our Minister of Education, Minister Tiham, who said recently that research is the vital ingredient in the creation of new industries, new technologies, and new jobs. Indeed it is. Research is the creation of new knowledge. It is vital to human development to expanding our horizon. Research gives freshness and relevance to teaching, which in turn produces graduates better able to contribute to society. It provides the basis for collaboration with other institutions, especially international ones, on problems that really matter in the world right now. Our research record is very strong. We have a Nobel Prize winner amongst us in Professor Barry Marshall. And we have produced a field medalist in Professor Aksay Bankatash. At the moment, we are having to work harder than ever before to secure the research funding we require. And we have had a number of recent successes, particularly in our School of Medicine. And I'm pretty sure we are going to hear from our dean on that very shortly. There are no easy answers to this, but we will explore every existing avenue and try to create new ones. We also place a high value on the quality of student experience. I have made improving student experience as one of my priorities. Our students must know that we care for them, that we understand their needs and are committed to doing whatever we can to promote their future interests and dreams. This is vital to our success in attracting students and to their effective learning while they are with us. The on-campus experience is a pressurized one, a memorable one for many, and we are working to enrich that. But we must always be aware of the fact that for the overwhelming majority of our students, that experience will be a short part of their lives. Their future lie elsewhere. We are working to expand our already promising program of work-integrated learning. We want to involve our students in the world of paid work, whatever their field, as early as possible. And I'm personally a big fan of work-integrated learning, and I would like to create much more opportunity for our students to do just that you know, here at EWA. The world of work often teaches students the true meaning and value of what they're studying and why they're studying it. Helping students enter that world is 
practical proof of our concern for their future. We are proud of our students, our staff, and our alumni here in Australia. We are proud to be a member of Group of Eight, Australia's leading research intensive universities. We know that we are one of the world's leading universities. So we intend to accept the role of leadership in our region. The Indo-Pacific is a vital concern to us, along with our profound cultural ties to the United Kingdom and continental Europe, and our connections with our ally, the United States. They're all part of our new worldview. Our Perth US Asia Center is regarded as Australia's leading think tank with regard to relationships between Australia, the Indo-Pacific nations and the United States. UWA is also only one of two universities outside the Republic of Korea to have been awarded a five-year grant by the Academy of Korean Studies, which has helped establish our Korea Research Center. We are one of the three universities which still teaches Indonesia, and we host the Australian Consortium for In-Country Indonesian Studies, the largest provider of Indonesian study abroad experiences for Australian students. We'll continue to collaborate internationally. Universities have always done so, sometimes under great difficulties. And EWA is an important player on the international scene. We are in the knowledge business. Knowledge knows no boundaries. Therefore, we are by definition international. Our alumni and their networks, you, play a very important role in this. You are also part of our international commitment. Western Australia is a remarkable place with a remarkable university. Perth, one of the most isolated city in the world as it is known, is also one of the most connected and vibrant. WA sends its children with their knowledge and ideas onto the world. But wherever they are, they remain part of us. And this event is a good testimonial to them. And we are determined at EWA to keep faith with you. You can still be proud of your university. We're going to survive all these challenges. Not only will survive, we intend to thrive. We'll teach, create new knowledge, and serve our community right across the vast state of Western Australia. And we'll always be proud of you, our alumni, and grateful that you care about us too. Thank you very much. Now it's my pleasure that to briefly introduce my colleague, uh, Professor John Watson. Uh, John is the Executive Dean of our Faculty of Medicine. And uh, like uh, myself, uh, John is a new arrival, except he arrived a few months before I did, so right. he knows way more about EWA than I do. John, on to you. Oh, well, thank you, Vice Chancellor. I'm not sure about that, but uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you all uh, this morning, um, UK time. And I'm, I'm aware there are some colleagues who are signing in from elsewhere in the world. So I'm going to talk to you briefly about the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences, particularly uh, about the medical school, um, and also just a brief introduction of myself. So if we can go to the first slide, please. So we'll just click on, thank you. So um, some of the more astute of you might have noticed uh, an English accent. Um, although I have been in Australia for 23 years now, I haven't lost my accent. So I, I trained in the UK, so I went to, um, I was brought up in Taunton in Somerset. And then I was lucky enough to go to Cambridge for my undergraduate degree in medical sciences. And then um, Magdalen College, Oxford for my Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery degree training at the John Radcliffe Hospital. I decided by then I was going to be a clinical academic and I went to Newcastle University in the Northeast to do my PhD, which was on hepatitis C, which was very appropriate given that um, the Nobel Prize last week was uh, awarded to three of the founders. And I remember reading some of their early papers in the early 1990s when I did my PhD. Next slide, thank you. Then I came to Australia. And first of all, I came to Ballarat in Victoria. Um, and there was not much culture shock for me moving from England to Ballarat, and um, it was a great pleasure to go into full-time practice for a number of years. I, I then went to New South Wales to the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle and took up a more academic position, 
um, as director of liver services there. And then came back to Deakin University in Victoria when um, Prime Minister Howard, as it was then, established the medical school. So I worked my way through the system there, became the clinical school director and then the dean of medicine at Deakin in 2014. And um, I'd come to the end of my second year, uh, second three year tenure and was then delighted to be offered a position here at UWA. Uh, so I signed up last November and arrived in February. So I've said uh, before today that two things arrived in February, me and the virus. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, it's been a, an interesting year, but a real opportunity to get to know lots of people very quickly. Next slide, thank you. And um, I remained active in clinical practice. That was me doing my last endoscopy list install in Western Victoria, uh, just on the 7th of February, just before I came, I got on the plane and came over to Western Australia. And it's been a great privilege to look after all my patients all these years. Thanks. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a snapshot of where we are now. Um, next slide, thank you. So um, the Vice-Chancellor's already talked about our rankings um, globally. And um, of course, as he said, rankings aren't everything, but they do give you a good indication of where you're sitting. And certainly um, since arriving here in February, I've been really impressed by the quality and the breadth of research expertise. There are some fantastic people that we have both in the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences and more broadly across the university. Last year, we were eighth in the world for clinical medicine. That's dropped a little bit, but we're still in the top 30 in the world. We're also in the top 100 for public health and even for nursing, even though we don't offer nursing as a degree anymore, the postgraduate research still takes us there. And you can see the other rankings there for pharmacy, dentistry, and medical technology. Next slide. And um, we have the figures for 2018 and 2019 by publications. You can see that the medical school does the bulk of the heavy lifting, which is not surprising because we have, um, as I say, some excellent researchers there. So in 2019, the medical school published a little bit over 1,700 um, publications, and the breakdown is shown in the graph on the right. Um, however, across the faculty more broadly, there is a, a, a great breadth. So we have a terrific school in biomedical sciences, which teaches our undergraduate biomed degree and takes a lot of PhD and higher degree students. And I've also really enjoyed working with our School of Population and Global Health, which has a number of major links um, across the world. Um, we're working hard with Allied Health and Dental School and the Dental School to really broaden their research expertise as well. They're already uh, very well embedded in teaching and we're doing some work um, to support them in research. Next slide. Um, the other area which took my attention um, early on um, here at UWA was working with the Australian Medical Council uh, regarding the accreditation of the medical degree. And in some ways I was lucky because in my role as Dean at Deakin, I had already supervised the transition of a Bachelor of Medicine of surgery degree into an MD at Deakin. So I took them through that process over the six years that I was the Dean there. And that was uh, very helpful because I knew the, um, the committees at the AMC, I knew the leadership group there, and I got to know them very quickly again in terms of working with them at UWA. So you might have heard that the transition um, in 2018 and 2019 um, here at UWA did cause some bumps in the road with the um, Australian Medical Council. And um, I spent some time talking to my colleagues um, in the student cohorts and obviously in the hospitals and in government. And I'm pleased to say that I feel we've made some great progress and I'd like to really um, compliment both our students and also our hard workers in the medical school. Um, so we came under the new regime, the new program earlier this year. Um, initially last year, we were given a 12 month um, reaccreditation. And um, the good news earlier this year was that we were re-accredited this time for three years. Um, we had to make our first submission on this three-year accreditation in July this year. And um, you can see there a copy of the letter which we've received. And we were delighted to see that we've met the requirements and they felt our medical program met the accreditation standards. Next slide. Um, and um, the committee actually liked, uh, thanked us for our detailed evidence and support. And um, it's been really good working with them actually on the accreditation. I, I think we're very much on the right track now. Next slide. So we're talking a little bit about the future. Uh, as the Vice Chancellor has already mentioned, we do have some challenges, but 
I think we can meet them head on and I'm very optimistic about the future of this university and about medicine and health. I've deliberately put this first in terms of what I've been talking to our team about because I do believe that our people are definitely our most important asset. Uh, and that's not just our academics who are clearly very important, it's everyone. So it's the people who support us in the labs, in um, teams around the academic services, in the exams, and of course our people also include our student bodies. So um, we've had lots of conversations about uh, being inclusive and collaborative, diversity, respect, professionalism and engagement and motivation, and really thinking about making a difference and serving our communities, both here in the West and more broadly. Next slide, please. In terms of research, I've already said to you, I think that there are some excellent researchers here. One observation I would make is that a lot of research in medical sciences has arisen organically, really. Um, so what we're going to do is really try and help our top researchers by defining areas of research priority based on uh, pillars of research excellence, if you like. Um, that allows us to really target funding and support um, in terms of grant applications, recruitment, and so on. I really think research excellence informs our teaching and vice versa, and we're going to work very hard with industry and, of course, with our alumni partners. Next slide. Here's some of the themes we've been thinking about. Um, rather than have broad themes like cancer and immunity, which you often see across different medical centers, we're actually trying to think about the 21st century. So we're thinking much more about preventative health clinical care, technology, which is going to be so important for Oli and his colleagues in the future, anthropogenic health threats, which we've all talked about, but we really need to put resources and support into, and understanding disease. And the little bubbles there, which look a bit like lava lamps, um, actually show where our excellence in that as well, as a first choice university and our excellence, because I truly believe if our students come to a research intensive university, it gives them great opportunities that they uh, potentially couldn't get elsewhere. So we want to really deliver an excellent student experience. And um, in addition, I've asked the faculty, and we're already starting to do this, to think about lifelong learning. So rather than students graduating and never coming back to us again, we want to give them opportunities for micro-credentials, short courses, postgraduate courses as we go forward. Excellent. So we do have some challenges. Um, there's the elephant in the room. Um, next slide. And of course, it's this chat, the coronavirus. Um, the Vice Chancellor's already talked about that. We do need to work through that, both in our faculty and elsewhere. But I do really believe that we will emerge leaner and stronger and more fit for purpose going forward. And I think that may be the end. Uh, just next slide. Yes. So it's my great pleasure now to um, introduce um, Ollie Deersley, who's been the president of the uh, West U UWA Medical Student Society. At a personal level, I've really enjoyed working with Ollie this year. Um, during what's been an incredibly difficult year with the pandemic, with all of our clinical placements being closed down for a period of time. And Ollie has represented the cohort so well and been really productive and, um, and positive in his approach. And it's great that our students are now back in their clinical placements. Ollie's actually going to be graduating in a couple of weeks' time and will be one of 30 students who we've picked to graduate early to help with the workforce uh, requirements in Western Australia. So, He's a bit scared about being a doctor, but I've told him not to worry. First 30 years are the worst, and after that, I guess. <laughs> so I'll hand over to Ollie to talk a bit about the student experience. Okay, thanks, Professor Watson. Um, good morning to everyone in the UK. As uh, Prof. Watson said, my name is Oliver, and I'm one of the final year Doctor of Medicine students here at UWA. So I thought I'd just start um, by going back a bit through my history, just to give a bit of perspective. So next slide, thank you. So I'm actually originally from Adelaide. I grew up and did my schooling there and went to the University of Adelaide for my undergraduate, which was a Bachelor of Science. I then stayed there and did my honours in a neurogenetics lab. And I was lucky enough at the end of my honours year that they offered me a job there as a research assistant as well. So I did a few years there as a research assistant then decided that staying in a lab wasn't my kind of thing and I wanted to be more interact, uh, interacting with people that's when I decided to sit the gamset and go through the process of getting into medicine. I wanted a bit of a change, nothing wrong with Adelaide, but I wanted a bit of a change and broaden my perspectives a bit. So I decided to come over to Perth as well, as I've heard, I've heard a lot of good things about both Perth and UWA. So yeah, moved over to 
person. I think that gives me a unique perspective of what makes UWA so different. So coming here from the University of Adelaide, I found UWA to be completely different. Um, had a, a really different campus uh, culture, a number of kind of events, both academic, sporting, social that are on offer here is very different to my experience at Adelaide Uni. And it just was really welcoming as someone who had come into a foreign city and didn't know anyone at all. There's honestly a club, clubs and interest groups um, for everything you can think of, ranging from medicine, so where the Western Australian Medical Student Society was, we kind of represent all the students within medicine and anyone who has an interest in that. Then there is, a, for example, off the top of my head, that's Japanese society, there's a medieval fighting society, there's the law student society, there's honestly so many, I think over 150 different societies. And that for me was a huge part of what made UWA so exciting to come to. Um, Obviously, uh, there's plenty of wellbeing and mental health events that UWA, as well as the Guild, focuses on as well, which makes it always nice as a student. There's always a place to wind down. Um, and then also the actual campus itself is really lovely. Obviously, it's by Swan River and there's plenty of cafes throughout. And it's just kind of creates a really nice experience as a student. So I briefly mentioned the UWA Guild. and. This year I've been lucky enough to sit on the Guild Committee as the President of the Medical Student Society. Every time I go to one of the meetings at UWA Guild, I'm blown away by how motivated, driven and intelligent the students are on the Guild Committee. I am quite confident they're going to be the leaders of Australia in the, in the future. A, a lot of it goes over my head, but um, as I've said, there's over 150 different groups involved with UWA Guild and it's been incredible to see how the university executive talked to these students on the Guild to kind of work through the implementation of um, every change they make at the university. That's been especially the case this year given coronavirus and how many things have had to change. And then UWA Guild does amazing things for student support and welfare. And again, that's been something that can't be understated this year. Now. Well, sorry for the interruption. You may not know that David was the Guild president. I did not know that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All the impressive people seem to be guild present. <laughs> I think we have another three or four tuned in today. Wow. Yeah, well, gosh. That, yeah. Um, so I guess what I can talk to more so is the experience of doing medicine at UWA. Um, Professor Watson spoke about the kind of change that happened a few years ago to the degree. So when I did it, I came in through the postgraduate pathway. So I'm currently doing the four year doctor of medicine program. Um, but now there is a new medical sciences undergraduate pathway as well. And students can do this straight from high school, which means that instead of the kind of seven years doctor of medicine program, it can be six years with a medical sciences pathway. So it really provides, I guess there's a way for people who know they want to do medicine straight out of high school to get straight into doing the relevant medical undergraduate and then straight into medicine. But there's still room for people like me who are indecisive and do other things first and then want to do um, medicine. I think another thing that makes medicine good here um, is that we only have one year of the preclinical kind of phase when you're in lectures and tutorials, um, and then you get three years of clinical, uh, complete clinical placements. So you go through different rotations at all the major hospitals in WA, and it really kind of gets you immersed. And this is where you learn most of the, um, the art of being a doctor, I guess. I'll just briefly mention WOMS, which is the Student Society I'm in, and just one of the examples of what different groups they do have at UWA. So we're a group of over 100 different medical students. Um, we organise hundreds of different events every year, ranging from sports, social and academics. But I think our biggest role is working with people like Professor Watson to advocate to the Faculty of Health and Medical um, Sciences about all the changes relevant to medical students. So that's been a huge part of my role this year. Um, and that photo there is just one of our cool volunteering opportunities called Teddy Bear Hospital, where we go out to primary schools in the country in Western Australia and kind of get pre-kindy kids used to doctors and not so afraid of healthcare. So I guess a big part of what's happened this year is the impact that coronavirus has had on medical students. When it first kind of hits back in February, March and April, we were all taken out of hospital placements. Um, the Faculty of Medicine did an incredible job of putting 
all of the content that would normally be assessed in hospitals and in tutorials on the ward there onto um, our online system. And we were having um, consultant-led tutorials several times a day as well. Um, I'm pleased to announce that they, or not announce, but just confirm that all of the years will progress and our final years will graduate as planned. I don't think this has been an easy feat anywhere in the world, uh, but again, the Faculty of Medicine has been incredible this year, kind of communicating all the changes that have had to happen. Obviously, there's been lots of changes to assessments, due dates, and the structure of the year, but they've all been very well communicated to students. And as Professor Watson mentioned, uh, we've had to work quite collaboratively with Western Australian Health Department and a few different hospitals and the Medical Registration Board to facilitate early start interns this year. So that's been quite an exciting thing as well and something that I'll be involved in. So fingers crossed that all goes well too. I think that's everything I had to say. So thanks everyone for your attention. Thanks. Thanks, uh, John and Oliver. Uh, just a reminder, the hit that question and answer button and give us a question. We've got three or four that we do some more for our uh, Q&A session at the end. Uh, so um, we're now about to hear about some of the outstanding research being carried out at UWA. Firstly, Professor Olivia Hall from Science Faculty School of Human Science will join us from Katanning, where she's agreed to talk to us while on leave, which is very kind of her. Uh, Olivia is head of the UWA Cardiovascular Electrophysiology Laboratory. She has a BSc and PhD from Macquarie University and undertook a postdoctoral work in the US at the K. Continuously oh. funded by <clears throat> member of the prestigious Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. Olivia's area of interest is the cause of heart diseases and the discovery of therapies that might deal with them. One specific interest is the so-called big heart syndrome, whereby apparently healthy young people experience sudden heart attacks. The work promises to make a major impact on our heart health. Uh, you will then uh, hear from Associate Professor Julia Powells. Julia was to be with us, but is not well, so she's um, broadcasting from home. Thank you, uh, Julia, for doing that. Julia was, for one time, one of us, a member of the UK alumni community, and while researching and working in the UK. She has a science degree from ANU, a law degree from UWA, both with honours. She later was awarded a Bachelor of Civil Laws from Oxford and a PhD from Cambridge. Her area of interest is the intersection between law and technology. She now heads the Mindaroo Technology and Policy Lab at the Law School, which collaborates with principal centres at Cambridge University, NYU, and UCLA, the UCLA and others uh, at the Oxford University at ANU. I now hand you over to Olivia from rural Western Australia when she has spoken to you and over to Julia. Terrific. Thank you, David. I'll just share my screen. <clears throat> yes, so thank you again. I'm absolutely delighted to be presenting uh, to the UK alumni. Uh, I'd far rather be there in person enjoying a reception with you, but obviously a pandemic has made that impossible. As David mentioned, I'm, I'm presenting here from the beautiful great southern region of uh, Western Australia and enjoying some uh, the, the last lot of the wildflowers here in the southwest. It's just beautiful. So I'm going to take you on a slightly different journey. I'm going to take you on a slightly different journey now and just give you a little bit of a snapshot of some of the work that my team uh, is working on at the University in the School of Human Sciences. And I must say that um, I would like to thank the executive at UWA for their tremendous support of research throughout the COVID crisis. We, my team um, of experienced researchers, not the students, but the postdocs have worked right through the pandemic uh, without that, on campus, on site, and have had terrific support from the executive, and I thank them for that. But my work, um, cardiovascular disease, as many of you will know, is in fact the leading cause of death in the world. It encompasses diseases of the heart and blood vessels. <clears throat> and I'll just move my picture over here. Um, <clears throat> and, it, and if we put it into the context of a pandemic right now with um, over a million people dying of COVID-19, 
In fact, we live with a pandemic of cardiovascular disease worldwide, worldwide every year. Nearly 18 million people die worldwide. And there's only one small region in sub-Saharan Africa where it is not the leading cause of death. In Australia, approximately one in 12 people die every minute. And in the UK, it's more common, one in three. And by far the majority of those deaths are due to coronary disease, approximately 49% of those deaths. <clears throat> I'm uh, trained as a patch clamp electrophysiologist. So uh, that technique was won, by, uh, won a Nobel Prize for Physiology of Medicine uh, by the two designers of the technique, Bert Sackman and Erwin Mayer in 1991, uh, because it's uh, revolutionized our understanding of excitable tissue. Uh, my group uses the technique to understand the movement of calcium into muscle cells and from that we're able to understand excitation in the heart, but also uh, because calcium is important for energetics, understanding the energetics, um, we actually can also understand the role of calcium in, in progression of disease and heart failure. So as I mentioned, uh, coronary heart disease is the leading cause of death, but there are also these other genetic or familial diseases. And some of the work I'm going to show you today deals with a group of diseases known as familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. <clears throat> this is in fact the most common genetic cardiovascular disorder. And it's very tragically the leading cause of sudden cardiac death in the young. So these are often fit, healthy, athletic uh, people, and um, it's the leading cardiac cause of death in five to 15 year olds. It affects approximately one in 500 people. We're not sure because the penetrance or the way in which people express the mutation varies, uh, but it may be as common as one in 200. So what happens with these mutations? We know the mutations uh, uh, occur in sarcomerical contractile proteins in the heart. And the mutation uh, leads to an enlarged heart, as David said, uh, 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 the big heart. Uh, and a large heart is probably a compensatory mechanism. But the problem with that, though, is the large heart then becomes a substrate for cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death. And as I mentioned, it's actually the leading cause of death in fit, healthy people. You may have seen football players or soccer players and um, marathon runners collapse. And this is frequently the cause of sudden death. I'm going to show you now a video of a soccer player in the Netherlands who has this familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I want you to watch the white circle and also watch the player's feet after he collapses. has cardiac arrested when his feet um, shift up it's because he has in his chest an implantable cardioverter in other words it, 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 um, it results in electrical conduction through the heart that allows the heart to kickstart back to normal and that's what you, it actually emits that um, electrical conduction through the body and that's why you see the feet jumping this soccer player sits up as you see and wants to continue to play but his medical team decides otherwise so these hearts on the right-hand side of this slide, you can see the hearts are, this is an ultrasound or echocardiography of the hearts, and they have big, thick muscles. Unfortunately, the real problem with this disease is there's no therapy, no food and drug administration approved therapy that will prevent the development of the heart muscle enlargement. If we could do that, we could save lives, sudden cardiac death, and of course, of course um, improve the, the uh, symptoms of these patients. Unfortunately, the only treatment that's available is symptomatic. So patients are given calcium channel antagonists, or beta blockers, antiarrhythmics, anticoagulants, an implantable cardioverter, as was the case with the soccer player. And uh, unfortunately, in the very worst of cases, a surgeon is required to cut away some of this muscle so that there's good cardiac flow through the heart. So we asked the question, if there's a healthy heart with a genetic mutation, how does it then lead to this enlarged heart and then to sudden cardiac death. What are the mechanisms by which this occurs? So this research builds on about a decade of work from my laboratory, where we identified a novel mechanism by which the heart functions about, uh, in, with respect to excitation and energetics. So if we look at this schematic on the left, we work on a channel or a protein in the muscle cell known as the L-type calcium channel. 
if you imagine this was a car, we call this the starter motor. So this actually excites the heart to start the excitation contraction. Then if you looked at the fuel tank, this would be the mitochondria, the energetics. But what we identified was that this protein in the membrane connects and communicates through to the mitochondria like levers on a beat-to-beat -beat basis. So this channel activates contraction and then allows the energetics to consume oxygen and supply energy on a beat-to-beat -beat basis. What we found in these sick hearts or big hearts was that this communication between this protein in the membrane and the energetic part of the mitochondria was in disarray. So that meant that the heart worked very hard and became very thick, very stiff, very hypercontractile and high oxygen consuming. We designed a peptide against the channel that targets the channel and prevents the channel from uh, or allows the channel to communicate differently to this energetics and um, actually allows the heart to rest, consume less oxygen and um, less ATP and actually uh, prevents it completely from getting enlarged. So if we actually label these cells with fluorescent indicators, we can see in the healthy heart, nice straight, this is the green um, fluorescent labeling of F-actin filaments. If we look to the right, the enlarged heart cell, it's in disarray. But after we treated a mouse model of the disease for five weeks before the development of the disease, we can see these nice striations normalizing. And the technique we use on our animal models, the mouse model is exactly the same as in humans, ultrasound or echocardiography. We can see on the left, a normal healthy heart contracting on a beat-to-beat -beat basis. If we move to the enlarged heart, the heart is thickened and following peptide treatment, we see a normalizing of this echocardiography to the heart back to a normal, normal state. So we've now published this in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences USA. Uh, we have an industry partner uh, who's now um, partnering with us to take this to phase one clinical trials. So this is very exciting because as I mentioned, there is no um, therapy that prevents the development of uh, the enlarged heart. There's one very close in the US at the moment, but this is in fact um, very exciting in terms of moving forward for therapy. So this is my team. I thank my team. Um, my collaborators in the US are the Sidemans who are world renowned for their work on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We work on the most common mice in heavy chamber seven mutation with them. And finally, I um, leave you with these beautiful images of Western Australia, which I leave at the end of every slide I, I, when I give talks overseas as uh, lasting images. Thank you. I'd like to now hand over to our last speaker, Julia Powells. Thanks kindly, uh, Livia, and wonderful to be with you all. Um, I was um, lured back to Australia after a reception at the US uh, alumni event a couple of years ago when I was um, working at New York University. And um, it was under a scheme um, of, the, of the current Vice Chancellor's predecessor called Be Inspired, a, a scheme to bring back um, or bring to Western Australia a number of scholars in different disciplines. And it was a, a, a sustained effort from the Dean of Law, um, Professor Natalie Skeed and the um, Executive Dean Matthew Tonts in Fable and has been a really welcome um, shift for me after years in the UK and the US. Um, I was also at Cambridge and Oxford like John and um, then also at Cornell Tech in the US. And I came back uh, last year and was excited to start to plan what I thought might be um, an, an endeavour somewhat detached from those places, um, ready to embrace the potential isolation of being in Western Australia. And I'm really fortunate to have, um, through the last year, been engaged in a, a network um, collaboration that's resulted in the creation of a new lab at UWA, which I just wanted to talk to you about briefly. It's called the Mindaroo Tech and Policy Lab, and it's supported by Mindaroo Foundation. It's the philanthropic arm of Andrew and Nicola Forrest, who loom large in Western Australia. And they were concerned about the impact of digital technologies on many aspects of our lives. Um, Western Australia, of course, has, a real, has made real headway in automation, um, in artificial intelligence, particularly in the mining sector, um, but it hasn't so much hit the urban environment. And so the mining industry in Western Australia and Australia more broadly is, I think, interested in the potential um, ramifications of advanced technologies for work, 
um, for aspects of uh, urban and civic life. Um, so we've established a network which has four key nodes. Um, they happen to be at the University of Cambridge, New York University, UCLA and University of Western Australia. We're the lead hub of that network and I co-direct it with um, a professor from uh, Human Sciences as well, along with Livia um, Jacqueline Alderson, who's um, a lead, leading researcher in applied machine learning in um, the human uh, sciences and particularly around health and sport. Um, so the three distinctive aspects of our network um, are that we are first unflinching in tackling what we call lawlessness in the tech ecosystem. Um, just in the last week, we've had this major report from um, the uh, US House Committee on Antitrust. There's been a major report over the last 18 months from Australia's Competition and Consumer Commission, all focused on the major tech platforms, likes of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and the way that they exist outside the realm of um, the usual landlocked laws that we are all subject to. And UWA Law School is an exemplary um, institution. I'd say it, 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 it easily matches the law schools that I've been in in the US and the UK. And I'm really excited to be leading a program where we can be very creative about the legal tools that we have now and the legal tools that we ought to have in wrestling with the impacts of digital technologies on work, um, and, and the sort of possibilities for meaningful uh, work, as well as on aspects of competition, consumer protection, um, and a fundamental challenge that it, there is no other intangible asset in the world quite like personal information, which is now the core asset of the most powerful companies in the world, but comes from all of us. And it's a really interesting um, line through, I started my studies in, uh, at, like um, uh, John and Ollie, and, um, medical sciences and genetics and I'm really struck by that difference between how we think about genetic material and biomaterial versus how we think about digital and in one case we're intensely protective perhaps overprotective, and the other digital technologies it's as if it's a free-for-all as soon as someone can collect data anything goes um, so that makes a really interesting place to play in the sort of lawlessness domain second distinctive feature is that we're deeply networked to have those partners in the US and the UK is really an exciting um, mission for me. If anyone out there has had um, experience in running an international uh, collaboration where you need to tic-tac with different time zones and different modes of working, I would welcome any advice. I must say that the pandemic has been somewhat of a feature, not a bug for an international program because unlike feeling like we're on, you know, in, a, in an isolated place looking out, um, we've really been the ones in the room being able to share space together and um, actually have a lot of opportunity for, for deep contact with collaborators. And the final thing um, which makes me particularly excited and has been really inspiring to be in this group is that um, our network centres female leaders. A number of women have been at the forefront for a long time of responding to the challenges of digital technologies. Some of you might have seen the recent film The Social Dilemma which centres um, many of the individuals who kind of got us into the crisis around big tech platforms and are now seeing the problems that have been created. And I'm quite inspired by a line from Mary Robinson, the former Irish president who has worked on climate justice and um, which has many analogues to data justice. And she speaks about a man-made problem with a feminist solution. And of course, feminist there is not just women, um, but I think people who believe in equality and in protecting those who are um, society's most disadvantaged and traditionally marginalised groups. So it's exciting to be in a network where I think we have really visionary leaders. I encourage you to look at our work. We're at a, um, we have our homepage at a site called Future Says, uh, and it inspires us to look with a voice from the future at the technologies that we have today and the futures we wish to build. Thanks very much. Thank you, Olivia and Julia. Um, we now move on to questions. Uh, first question from Jeff Gunningham. What is the most important thing that members of the UWA alumni community can do to assist the university during these challenging times? I'm happy to. Uh, there are many things alumni can do. Uh, let me say the most uh, powerful thing alumni do. Uh, talk about your alma mater whenever we get the opportunity. Uh, you know, it can be uh, it can be simply uh, you know bringing uh, the the attention of your 
friends and professional uh, colleagues uh, that uh, we exist. Uh, and then, uh, you know, if you begin uh, that, uh, and then talk about some of our research program that you may be familiar with, I think that's uh, really important because that's how uh, people get to know about us. It makes it easy for us to recruit students from all over the world. And also it allows us to uh, seek collaboration partnerships and eventually uh, you know, recruit uh, top professors uh, and like Julie and others that we have been able to recruit back to UWA. So that's one. Now, if you have to go one step further as a group, I think uh, you may consider uh, setting up some sort of modest scholarships uh, to promote student exchanges between the UK and Perth. Uh, I think one of the areas where we need to do more is to create opportunities for UWA students to go and learn in a different environment, you know, let's say in the UK in this case. And the, way, the best way of doing it is uh, by setting up student exchange programs, uh, whereby we send, say, a dozen students to a particular school in the UK and they do likewise. And, uh, you know, it helps uh, to provide some incentives to those who need that incentives. And also there are other students who may not be able to afford to make the trip and pay for the incremental cost. So I think uh, those two would help us fundamentally in advancing our core mission. We have a question from Kath Hunter-Cobbeda, uh, French trustee and deputy chair in the UK. Um, how are WA's hard borders affecting enrollments from interstate and overseas for next year? John, you want to take it uh, so that I don't monopolize? Well, um, yes, yeah, so thank you for the question. Uh, so certainly, um, well, interestingly, domestic um, enrolments have been very strong, um, both from within Western Australia, and we've had um, significant interest from the eastern states as well. I think that perhaps partly reflects the fact that probably next year we'll have a double year, if you like, because students won't be going off on a, a gap year after they leave school. Everyone's going to be coming to university, and also there may be some students who come back into education perhaps a little bit later on in their career if they've um, you know, decide to make a career change or um, lost their job or something like that. So that's actually playing quite well for us. Interestingly, also in international, um, in the international arena, certainly our applications are up at the moment for UWA, which I think is a great credit to the whole university. Um, now clearly applications have not yet converted to enrollment, so we'll know a little bit more in the next couple of months. Um, and we're already, so in my faculty, we're already working with students from overseas, setting up study centers in Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, China, and elsewhere, uh, where students can have um, perhaps a, a short-term online experience before they uh, transition into Western Australia as and when the borders come down. So um, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying um, we're actually traveling okay. We'd like more students. We do, do still have some challenges because, as I say, the applications have not yet turned into enrollments, um, but we're working very hard with all of our student applicants. We have a question from uh, Dick Porter, a French uh, trustee well known to our UK group. The question is given the coming free trade agreement uh, UK and Australia is looking at, between UK and Australia, is UWA looking to the opportunities for education research flowing from this by enhancing links? Well, uh, thank you for that question. We are always, of course, open uh, to uh, this sort of opportunities. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we, uh, we don't have much influence over what goes on in this trade discussion. But uh, if you have actually uh, enlightened uh, trade negotiators or enlightened policymakers, they follow the EU model. One of the you know, great uh, example of uh, free trade enhanced by other aspects, including uh, you know, the free flow of talents. Because uh, the notion that uh, you can just rely on uh, trading goods uh, is a little bit out of date notion. I think you have to allow for the free mobility of talent, because knowledge creation is an essential ingredient of future trade. And if you do that, then you have to uh, find a mechanism to support uh, you know, free creation of knowledge or generation of knowledge, the way EU research fund does. Of course, uh, with uh, the Brexit, it creates a challenge for our colleagues in the UK, because they may or may not be uh, part of that EU, uh, if you will, uh, ecosystem. And it creates an opportunity for 
countries like Australia. So if I were uh, advising the government of Australia, uh, I would say, let's put a, in a common research funding initiative as part of the trade discussion. And I think if we were to propose that on, from Australian side, UK certainly would not be uh, too, I guess it would not be too much of a surprise to them because they're used to operating in a model like this. So there are examples, a uh, most uh, successful example I can think of is uh, US uh, uh, Israel you know, research fund. So I, I certainly hope that uh, we look at it and if you have any uh, influence with uh, the power that be, you know, that'd be another important contribution that our alumni can make just by flagging it. So maybe uh, those of you are based in the UK, uh, if you know the High Commissioner, Australian High Commissioner in, in the UK, that would be a good conversation, you know, to have with the High Commissioner. Thank you, Vice Chancellor. Uh, there's another question from an anonymous attendee. Um, I think there's a couple of questions in here bundled together. Thank you for a really interesting presentation. The formats works very well. Thank you. A question from Professor Watson. For potential donations to UWA, can funds be directed to a particular area of medical research and will donors be given updates on the research? Uh, yes, absolutely. And we've been working very hard on that uh, this year in terms of the governance of our philanthropy with um, uh, um, donor and alumni relations uh, who have been incredibly helpful. So we do have a number of uh, um, very generous donors and requests where people have understandably stipulated what they want the work to be on. And we would absolutely want to work with the family or work with the donors um, to, to one of those requests. Um, our alumni team um, do work very closely with, um, with the donors to give uh, regular reports. Um, if people are local in Australia, we're always delighted to show them around the labs or show them the clinical research work that we're doing and have an afternoon tea or anything like that as well. So I can reassure you that we'd be delighted to have any conversations around. Uh, here's a question from Monty King. With a large group of UWA alumni living outside Australia, and the long-term effects of COVID-19 restricting international mobility. What opportunities do you see for the university to offer online postgraduate studies to overseas alumni? Well, I might take that again as well. Um, so we, as I mentioned um, briefly in my presentation, we've been really looking and I've been encouraging the faculty to look at the concept of lifelong learning, because I think um, looking at universities going forward, a model where students came, did perhaps an undergraduate degree or at most two degrees and then didn't engage with the university anymore, uh, is now changing. So people are looking much more at the concept of lifelong learning. Um, so for example, I've had some very productive conversations with the business school about a possible MBA in healthcare management, which is similar to what I set up at my previous institution, where health leaders could come back to us and do some core MBA units from the business school but also do some very bespoke health units in terms of health leadership. Um, so uh, the answer is yes. Um, we already offer a number of online units. We're expanding those offerings. Um, obviously, it's been a, a big year for us this year, putting, um, putting our core business up online, if you like. But I think that's been very helpful because it's really educated us a lot about um, how we do things differently in the cloud. Um, and um, we're having some discussions around having a cloud campus in the future, perhaps with a, um, a small team of academics and staff who look after that cloud campus and differentiate it from the physical campuses that we live in. If I can add to that, uh, uh, we are lucky to have John with us. Uh, John, uh, as uh, you heard, uh, served uh, at Deakin University. Uh, Deakin uh, has done uh, extremely well in terms of uh, embracing, if you will, uh, digital learning, uh, they call it uh, cloud campus. And uh, I'm very much uh, attracted to that idea. And uh, John uh, and other colleagues actually are thinking about it, uh, not only from the point of view of uh, students who are overseas, or alumni who are overseas, uh, the way uh, uh, the, the style of learning is evolving we actually need those sort of learning tools, even for our on-campus students. Increasingly, a large number of our students uh, prefer to take part of your program uh, online for several reasons. So I'll just give you a couple. One is just, uh, you know, people learn differently. 
and sometimes you know when you have the access to online digital resources you can learn it at your own pace and second one uh, you know increasingly uh, in a growing uh, number of our students uh, take on part-time jobs so they need flexibility in how they learn and the list is long so for us uh, to be able to respond to the needs of our students current and future we have no choice but to provide those sort of opportunities question for question and comment from sarah Bersden in the uk message for livia thank you for your presentation and please never feel like wa is isolated your voice is every bit as strong for being based in wa as it would be if you're sitting in cambridge i think that is oh wonderful thank you <laughs> connections uh, uh and and knowledge that livia that uh, julia has brought back to western australia uh, sarah has a follow-on question um, is there a fund set up for donations and could a donor stipulate which UK university they would like to, you'd like the student to attend? I'd like to discuss this further. I'm happy to, happy to take it on. I don't know what our policies are, but we're going to, we're going to assume, I'm going to assume that our policies either will accommodate, if not, we'll change the policy. The answer is yes. <laughs> there is a precedent in the uh, Professor Jeff Laurent Memorial Foundation does provide for the exchange of students between UWA and UCL, and that's been funded uh, both uh, in Western Australia and in the UK. Um, I think that we'll call it, for we've, we've done our hour, um, I think we'll call a halt now. Thank you very much for your questions. Um, a recording of the webinar will be available shortly, shortly. so please, if the things you want to revisit, um, uh, access that, and please let others who weren't able to be with us today, let them know that there is uh, this catch-up facility available. So on behalf of uh, UK alumni, I say thank you to the Vice-Chancellor and his colleagues for making time to connect with us all. Thanks to the alumni relations team, Josh Van Camp and Michelle Armstrong, um, to the AB team led by Sean Chan, and finally, to Fiona Allen, the, uh, the Director of Advancement, whose support has been vital to making all this happen. So um, thank you for attending. Goodbye from the Crawley campus and take care. And may I thank you for your uh, enthusiasm and uh, for your leadership role in keeping uh, uh, friends uh, in the UK engaged with their alma mater. Thank you.